The Vatican maintains its vaccine mandate while some European nations are dropping theirs. And Pope Francis's restrictions on the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass continue to spark controversy worldwide. Canon lawyer and COVID survivor Cardinal Raymond Burke shares his thoughts from Rome. And the Vatican's financial corruption trial continues as two courier officials test positive for COVID. The papal posse, Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray, are here with analysis. Finally, this week marks the annual March for Life in Washington. Physician and gubernatorial candidate in Minnesota, Dr. Neil Shaw, tells us why more legislation is needed to protect life here in the U.S. The World Over begins right now. Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have a great show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover this evening. Let's get started. In early August of 2021, my next guest made headlines all over the world when it was announced he had contracted COVID-19. By the middle of that month, he'd been placed on a ventilator and was struggling for his life. He's been on the slow road to recovery since leaving the hospital in September. He's here tonight to talk about not only his illness and his extraordinary recovery, but some news of the day. Please welcome the former head of the Vatican's highest court, one of the world's foremost canon lawyers, Raymond Cardinal Burke. Your eminence, thank you for joining us. And of course, as you can see, he joins us from Rome. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Raymond. I'm pleased to be with you. Uh, first of all, how are you feeling, and are you having any lingering effects from the COVID recovery? Well, in general, I'm, I'm feeling very well, and I'm uh, returning more or less to a, a normal pace of life. Uh, the, the lingering uh, effect has been on my lungs. The, 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 the virus uh, attacked in a very vicious way. Uh, my lungs, and so they, there's some healing yet that has to take place. And the doctors mm -hmm. tell me that they, they don't know a lot about this, how long it takes, but that it could take up, up upwards of a year uh, or so. And mm. I, I, I'm getting stronger all the time, and, uh, but uh, that's the one lingering effect. Uh, of course, I was on a ventilator for nine days, which were wow. nine days lost for me. I don't have any recollection at all of that. And so when I came out from the from that intubation, uh, I couldn't even stand up, uh, and I had to regain all of my ability to to stand, to walk, to negotiate stairs. And thanks be to God, that has that has gone well. And that was part of the reason for the long recovery. And then, as people yeah. who've had this will tell you, that uh, there was this terrible fatigue that I had for. I left the hospital on September third. And for about a month, uh, I was just tired all the time. It didn't matter how many hours I slept at night. I would wake up mm. in the morning tired. It's a terrible thing. But it, that passed, too, thanks be to God. And, and uh, yeah. uh, I tire a little earlier than the day in the day than I used to. But uh, during the day, I'm quite fine. 
Well, Your, Your Eminence, it, it's a miracle given that you were on a ventilator that you've come back and, and, you know, have recovered. So a lot of people, frankly, don't make it off that ventilator. So I, I was very concerned when I first read of that. So, you know, thank God you, you made it through and you're on the mend. Now, you celebrated your first mass, the traditional Latin mass after recovery, this past December 11th. And you thanked above all God and, and all those who prayed for your recovery. Were you surprised by the outpouring of the prayers and the kind? words from so many vis-a-vis uh, -vis your recovery? Yes, I, I, I became ill quite suddenly, and then I was very quickly put on the ventilator, and so, what, but when I came out uh, from that, uh, I think it was on the 20th of August, and I began to, to read these messages and to learn about all the people who are praying for me. I was really overwhelmed with it and just filled with a, a profound gratitude. Uh, and I have to say that when they took the, 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 vent, the tubing out and I was conscious again, that I had an immediate sense that our Blessed Mother had been, had been taking care of me all the time. And, and, and I, I say this very sincerely. The doctors had informed my, my good sister Mary uh, that there was really not any hope that I was going to survive this and that she should put my things in order. Uh, mm. And I, am, I have no question in my mind that it was all these prayers that were raised up to our Lord and, and the prayers that he heard and, and, and saved me for some work now that he has for, for me to do. But I had, I had immediately that very strong sense and it, it has remained with me. Uh, it was, uh, it really was miraculous, and we should never doubt the power of prayer, but in, in this instance, I, I have experienced it in a remarkable way because I, I knew I was dying, and uh, I, I didn't really, uh, wasn't at all certain that I would, would survive, uh, yeah. uh, and when I then gained my consciousness again, I uh, and I learned about all these prayers that were offered. I, I understood what had happened. Yeah. In, in many reports uh, of your illness, you were portrayed, Your Eminence, as a vaccine denier and skeptic. Even the Pope made reference to you as a denier on the papal plane returning uh, on his trip from Slovakia in September. He said even in the College of Cardinals there are some deniers, and one of those, poor guy, is hospitalized with the virus. The irony of life. Well, what did you think when you heard those comments, that you were a denier and a skeptic of vaccines? Are you? Well, no, I, I, I have never said to anyone that uh, he or she should not be vaccinated. I've insisted that the question of, of, being, of having the vaccination is a personal decision. It's an exercise of a fundamental human right uh, and that I'm absolutely opposed to forced vaccination to these, these mandates. But I've, I have not taken a position uh, of, of being against uh, uh, the vaccine. On the other hand, uh, we have only one Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We put ourselves in his hands, and uh, uh, vaccinating the whole world is not going to save the world. And uh, there's, sure. there is this kind of rhetoric uh, today where people think that if, that if everyone were vaccinated, uh, everything would be just fine. And I, that isn't correct thinking for a Christian.
Yeah, well, and, and, and scientifically invalid, I might add, as events have proven, particularly with this Omicron yes. variant. I mean, the Vatican, however, Your Eminence, is currently mandating vaccines for all employees. It's been encouraging that everyone, including children, be vaccinated. Several members of the Pontifical Swiss Guard have lost their jobs for not receiving the jab. Now, there are no numbers of reporting on other jobs, you know, that have been lost so far. We just don't know. Your reaction to the Vatican's vaccine mandate, especially now, when, as we mentioned, it's been widely reported, the vaccine's not effective against Omicron. And several European countries have now, namely England and Spain, they've lifted their vaccine mandates. Yes, why well, uh, the, the Vatican's uh, uh, position on this is, 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 is very severe. There's no question about it. You, you cannot enter, uh, for instance, the Apostolic Palace uh, other offices of the Vatican, uh, unless you can demonstrate that that you are vaccinated, and this is a a very severe uh, policy. And I understand. I don't know personally, but I understand that that there are a number of people who uh, cannot come to work uh, because uh, they're not vaccinated, and of course they are their absence from work is is classified as unjustified, and therefore. They they aren't paid, and uh, and also I had heard that a number of the Swiss guards had to leave the service of the guards because they uh, mm. chose not to be vaccinated. Um, I, as I said before, I believe that the forced vaccination is 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 a violation of of human rights, and. Uh, also, uh, there are normal precautions which can be taken with regard to the spreading of any kind of illness, uh, and right. uh, those precautions should be taken. But and it, it's correct. There are a lot of people who've been vaccinated who, who, who now have contracted uh, seemingly this Omicron uh, uh, variation. To me, the, the, the bottom line is that the, the vaccination as it is is an experimental, is an experiment. And we're asking people not simply because this, we don't have the experience, we don't have the necessary uh, experience mm -hmm. with the vaccine. And uh, so people who, who, uh, who take the vaccine are accepting to be part of an experiment. Yeah, and as you mentioned, uh, there are there have even been Vatican officials who have now contracted COVID, uh, many of them triple-vaxxed uh, in some cases. It, it, tell me how this squares, though, with Catholic teaching, because the CDF document of last year, of last December, said you can, in good conscience and as a good Catholic, not decide not to take these vaccines, and that's perfectly licit. But now we seem to be getting a different message, at least in word, from the Vatican, and uh, to say nothing of these mandates they've dropped on employees. Well, what the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith said is Catholic teaching. Uh, it, it, a forced vaccination of people is no part uh, of Catholic teaching, and uh, I, that's all I can say. I the, this has mm -hmm. never been uh, uh, in, in the church's teaching, and the the document of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the CDF, uh, was clear about that. And uh, yeah. and we, th 
I thought that it was understood, but then the, the Vatican itself uh, has taken this, uh, this position, which really doesn't square uh, with, with that teaching, and, and it, it's, it's, caused, uh, it's causing a great deal of suffering. Yeah. I, I want to move on to another topic, Your Eminence, the continued support of and attacks upon the traditional Latin Mass since Pope Francis's motto proprio, Guardians of Tradition. Uh, that was released in July. Uh, in the Archdiocese of Chicago, where the Latin Mass has practically been banned, Cardinal Blaise Supich issued rules last month on Christmas Day that banned the use of the traditional liturgy on Christmas, Easter, Sunday, and the first Sunday of each month, and other holy days. Now, Cardinal Supich explains his reasoning for these new rules is the following, quote, to foster and make manifest the unity of this local church, as well as to provide all Catholics in the archdiocese an opportunity to offer a concrete manifestation of the acceptance of the teaching of the Second Vatican Council and its liturgical books. Cardinal Burke, what is the fear of the old rite based upon, and is it a challenge, the ongoing celebration of the Latin Mass, is it a challenge in your mind to the Second Vatican Council or the liturgical books that came out of it? The, absolutely not. I, the, in many dioceses now for, for, for many years, uh, the faithful have been, some of the faithful have been assisting at the the celebration of the Holy Mass, especially on feast days, according to the the more ancient usage, the Usus Antiquae, the extraordinary form, as it's called today, uh, and there hasn't been any cause of disunity. In fact, I served in two dioceses, and uh, uh, the, that was a great blessing to have these communities who were uh, mm -hmm. following the that those ancient rites as they've been handed down to us from the time of Pope Gregory the Great and, and even before. And these aren't, I don't want to talk about them as if they're simply antiquities, not at all. The sacred liturgy is a living reality. It's Christ himself acting in our midst to sanctify us and at the Holy Mass in the most wonderful way possible by his renewing his sacrifice on Calvary sacramentally and then nourishing us with his own body and blood. And this... Uh, uh, this remains the reality, and so that the form of the Mass as it uh, was uh, set forth after the Council of Trent, but as it had existed for centuries before, is a living reality, and you can't, uh, you can't deny that. And uh, with regard to the Second Vatican Council, many things that happened after the Council with regard to the sacred liturgy have no foundation whatsoever uh, in the in the documents on the sacred liturgy, and we know well, intelligent people who have studied these matters know well that there were many abuses following the council, the so-called spirit of the council, and the whole way in which the liturgy was reformed, uh, 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 the rites were reformed, and so there are legitimate questions. Some of them have been addressed. Uh, some yeah. need yet to be addressed, but. Uh, Pope, Pope, Pope St. John Paul II, for instance, in the last years of his pontificate, was continually insisting uh, on the need to, uh, to address uh, the sacred liturgy and to restore the, the transcendence of the liturgical action, namely that it's Jesus Christ himself who acts uh, uh, 
in our midst, comes into our midst through the sacred liturgy. And, uh, and of course, Pope Benedict XVI was a wonderful teacher in that regard. And, and Sumarum Pontificum, his motu proprio by which he made more accessible the, the celebration of the, of the extraordinary form, as he called it, mm-hmm. uh, was a great gift and w- was uh, proceeding in a very, the exercise of that, of that gift, uh, the use of that gift was, uh, was being, uh, was a great gift in the church. I don't understand this. I, I have a lot no. of contact with, with uh, uh, oratories and parishes that celebrate the extraordinary form with priests and uh, it's all positive. I don't, they don't think of themselves as being the real church or the better Catholics than anyone else. They simply find a tremendous spiritual nourishment uh, through these ancient rites, mm-hmm. the, 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 the traditional form of the Mass. And uh, why should that be denied to them? Uh, your, your Eminence, a, a, a priest in the Chicago diocese asked to be allowed to use the ad orientum posture facing the east during Mass. He was denied. Uh, when he protested, he was charged with inciting disobedience against the diocesan bishop. Has the ad orientum posture been abrogated, forbidden, by the council or the church? And what does all of that have to do with the Latin Mass? Well, any Mass can be celebrated facing the Lord or facing the East ad orientum or versus dominum. Uh, and in fact, many people tell me, and I, it makes perfect sense, that it's a very beautiful thing to have the priest at the head of the congregation offering the Mass, and that everyone is facing our Lord. So th- this makes it clear that the, the sacrifice is our Lord's sacrifice. It's uh, we mm. worship in spirit and truth in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, that is nothing in particular to do with the... It's true that that uh, the, the more ancient usage was certainly to celebrate Mass uh, facing the Lord, facing the East. But uh, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't find anything in the documents of the Second Vatican Council that would uh, lead to a banning of the... Uh, of, of the traditional uh, way of the, the traditional posture or position of the priest during the celebration of the mass, and uh, why this is now being brought forward, I don't understand. Your, Your Eminence, the 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 practical effect of this, I think uh, people haven't taken or given due consideration in Rome. Uh, what I'm hearing is so many of these Catholic communities, and again, these are small groups of Catholics, but they're fervent, the church is packed for these these, uh, traditional Latin masses. Many of them are now going over to these uh, St. Pius X chapels, the Society of St. Pius X chapels. Is the intention here on the part of some in Rome to drive those Catholics attached to this rite to the Society of St. Pius X and then declare them all schismatics at some later date. Why create this division while talking of accompaniment? Right. I, I, I don't know. I've been told that, too, that the, that the thinking of some is that, that anyone who uh, is attracted to the, the more ancient usage the, uh, should simply go over to the Priestess Society of St. Pius X. Uh, if, but that's absolutely wrong because the 
the more ancient usage is an integral part of the life of the church. It has been uh, along all the centuries, and even uh, after the introduction of the, the Novus Order, as it's called, or the more recent usage, the church has always permitted uh, uh, to individuals and to groups the possibility of, a, of, the, of, use, of following the, the more ancient usage. And so uh, right. uh, this idea that somehow if you uh, are attracted to the Lusus uh, Antique, we are, you, you're a schismatic. I mean, this is simply uh, wrong, and, and, and it's wrong to drive people in that direction. But our Lord is with us in the church. He told us he would remain with us always in the church, and so we have to stay in the church and, and uh, fight to uh, to to preserve and to to promote and cultivate uh, the liturgical life of the church, uh, uh, also through the through the extraordinary form. And so I, I tell mm-hmm. people, we don't have a choice. Saint Athanasius, he was exiled. He was excommunicated. He uh, suffered so many humiliations for defending the truth of the faith, but he never left the church. He. And Padre Pio is another example, more recent. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he suffered a great deal at the hands of the, of the Vatican, and, and yet he, he remained faithfully in the church, and this is what we have to do. And our Lord isn't mm-hmm. going to permit, I, I know this, our Lord is not going to permit that this beautiful gift uh, of, the, uh, of the more ancient usage, the beautiful gift of, the, of, the, of these rites, Will be lost. He, he just, and it's mm. clear that he hasn't permitted it. And uh, since the time of the of the council, there's been a continual mm-hmm. growth and uh, uh, in interest. And I, uh, in in the ancient, uh, the more ancient usage, and I uh, uh, know so many lay faithful and also priests who have told me that uh, they, being able to assist at the holy mass. Uh, in the, according to the Usus Antique, we are, uh, has so helped them to deepen their understanding and their appreciation mm-hmm. and their participation uh, in the Holy Mass. Yeah. No, no, I've had a number of priests tell me it wasn't until they, they uh, either assisted or celebrated the old rite that they fully understood and then brought a, a new sacrality and devotion to the new one, because, it, it, it again, yes. one feeds the other. It stands That's on the right. back of the other. But it is, as you mentioned, Your Eminence, and I would add Mother Angelica's name to that list of, uh, you know, uh, martyrs for the faith fighting and being oh, abused yes. by, <laughs> yes. by uh, authorities yes. at, at times um, over the liturgy, uh, let, let's face it. Um, it is curious and bizarre to me that at the same time that the Vatican is inviting Protestants and Anglicans to walk with the the Roman Catholic Church in this synod, we are basically treating very faithful Catholics of a living, beautiful tradition of the Church as if they're lepers and saying there's no room for you at this inn. I mean, George Weigel called uh, Tradiciones Custodes theologically incoherent, pastorally divisive and unnecessary. Uh, Bishop Thomas Tobin of Providence is calling on the Church to support those attached to the old right. Do you think this is going to be an ongoing struggle here? And how best to, to fight it? No, it, it will be. And uh, my, my counsel to people is continue to do what you've been doing. 
This is uh, this is nurturing your faith. This is nurturing your closeness to your to your bishop and your closeness to the whole church, and uh, and that is the way that uh, we can best fight this battle. And then to vindicate our rights in the church to to make recourses when injustices are done to to legitimate communities of the faithful. And of course, there are also institutes of the consecrated life or societies of apostolic life whose particular charism is the celebration of the, the, of, the, uh, of the liturgy according to the more ancient usage, the Roman rite according to the more ancient usage, and, and to promote that. And they have a, they, it's their right to do that. So I believe that there, uh, that there will continue to be a, a very strong uh, response to, to the situation, and, and uh, mm -hmm. God willing, and I'm sure that our Lord will bless it, uh, that uh, we will return to a, a, a regular free usage, uh, uh, regular free usage of the more uh, ancient uh, usage of the of the Roman rite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, in the meantime, uh, it's going to be very difficult when many of these these uh, priests are not allowed to celebrate the Latin Mass in a parish setting. So I guess this goes underground, like uh, as it was in days gone by and in communist China. I guess that's where the whole world is now. Uh, Your Eminence, in December, Pope Francis wrote a letter praising the work of Sister Janine Gramic, the head of the very controversial New Ways Ministries, a group of... Uh, uh, condemned by the bishops' conference in the U.S., uh, two previous pontificates, and the Pope praised her work for uh, her outreach to LGBTQ Catholics. Uh, his letter fully contradicts John Paul II and Ratzinger's 1999 admonition against her work. What are your thoughts on this letter and the message it sends to the Church and the wider world? Well, the church's response to the new uh, ways uh, ministry, and at that time he was still alive, Father Nugent and Sister Janine Gramic, is found in a document of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. It was published in the Acta Apostolici Sedis, the official uh, uh, organ of communication of the of, of the church. Uh, in 1999, and you can read it there, and what's written there is as true today as when it was written. And uh, what these personal acts of the Pope are, are exactly that. These are acts that he is, is taking on uh, personally, but they have nothing to do with the Church's teaching, as far as I'm concerned. What I read uh, 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 that was quoted in the, in the, in the media uh, of the letter uh, or letters, I'm not sure, uh, uh, which he has written to to Sister Janine. These are simply the opinions of a of a, of a man, but they have nothing to do with the, the the magisterium of the church. That's found very carefully set forth mm. in uh, in that document. And if, when a document is published in the Act Apostolici Status, uh, this is very significant. Uh, it indicates to us that it is, in a particular way, an expression uh, of the Church's doctrine and discipline. It's being reported, Your Eminence, that the Holy See's latest proposals to reform the Knights of Malta 
threaten its status as a sovereign state. Now, to give the audience a little background here, the order experienced a governance crisis in 2016. That was sparked by a condom distribution scandal that resulted in Pope Francis ousting the then Grand Master and imposing years of Vatican-mandated reforms. In 2020, Francis appointed his latest envoy to oversee those reforms, Cardinal Silv Silvano Tomasi. Uh, last year, he gave Tomasi powers to override the Knights' existing constitution and governance structures. Now, according to Tomasi's latest draft of the proposed new constitution, the Knights of Malta would be subject to the Holy See. In a letter to the Knights members obtained by the Associated Press, the Knights' Grand Chancellor, Albrecht von Bussenlager, said he would normally raise objections directly with the Holy See, but, quote, that avenue has been closed to me, end quote. What do you make of these reforms, and why would the Holy See want the Order of Malta to be subject to the Holy See? I, honestly, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I still have the title of the cardinal patron of the Sovereign Military Hospital Order of St. John of Jerusalem, Rhodes, and of Malta, which is the formal name. Uh, mm -hmm. But I haven't had any function since that crisis, which you described in 2016, and I don't receive any communications. But I know I, I, I did serve from November of uh, 2014 uh, the order uh, and studied carefully its history. And uh, Pope Paschal II, who, who originally recognized uh, the order, wanted it to have this sovereign status in order that it could carry out more effectively. I, I don't understand exactly what this, what this all means, but I would say this, that uh, if the final document states that the, the order is subject absolutely to the Holy See, not just with regard to the re requirements of the of, uh, of the consecrated members of the of the professed knights, uh, then I would I can only imagine that the other nations would not accept any more uh, uh, representation, separate representation from the Order of Malta. Yeah, no, it's it's it is a sovereign order, and it has enjoyed that sovereignty all these years, and now that's being threatened. And to the outsiders, that may not seem like a very big deal, but this this has been this order of Malta has been around for uh, centuries, and uh, that sovereignty was a part of its function. So, Raymond Cardinal Burke, thank you for the clarity. Great to see you back, and of course, your insight. We continue to pray for your good health yes, and you. uh, ongoing recovery. Thank you, Thank you for all your prayers, and I thank everyone who has prayed for me. Thank you so much. God bless. Thank you. And, and Cardinal Burke's website is at cardinalburke.com. <laughs> Joining me now with reaction to my interview with Cardinal Burke and more is the Papal Posse in our first ride of 2022, editor-in-chief of The Catholic Thing, Robert Royal, and canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray, thank you both for being here. Gentlemen, the big takeaways for you in that interview, Father Jerry, then Bob, very quickly. Well, uh, his Cardinal Burke's defense of the Latin Mass, uh, the fact that this really is an injustice to people who are very devoted to the Church. Uh, regarding the Order of Malta, uh, it would be a grave error for the Holy See to ask them to uh, suppress their sovereignty. There's no clear reason why that needs to be done. Uh, and then, of course, uh, it's so great to have Cardinal Burke back and see him healthy, and uh, we have continued to pray for his recovery. Bob, your shot. 
Yeah, I, it, when I try to think of all those things together, the question that is put to me is one, it's a, a, a phrase that the Pope has used. He says, we want unity, but not uniformity. And the, you know, the moves against the Latin mass, against ad orientum in Chicago, um, this kind of diminishment or perhaps abolition of the independence of the, um, the sovereign, sovereign order of Malta, all these things seem to me to be much more um, about uh, about unifying, about unif about uniformity, rather than the kind of spiritual unity. So something is, you know, it's a general thing that's going on in the church, and um, I think that one thing seems to to thread a ne a various needles that all kind of mm -hmm. fit together. I want to dig deeper into this controversy over the motto proprio, or guardians of tradition, and the situation in Chicago. Uh, this Father Anthony Bush, who is a pastor of St. Stanislaw Parish, he wrote a letter challenging Cardinal Supich's cancellation of the Latin Mass in his parish after requesting permission from his local bishop to offer the Mass ad orientum in his parish. Um, he had said that he will comply with the Cardinal's directive, but he went on to write, the Archbishop does not provide evidence that ad orientum was abrogated at the Second Vatican Council. As I read uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium and the Roman Missal, the implication is ad orientum was not abolished or prohibited. On the contrary, liturgists, prelates, priests, religious had a glorious time at the council taking liberties to change the face of the church. Many faithful Catholics are being cruelly demoralized, thrown into confusion, which is something the Pope admittedly takes joy in and are purposely being pushed to the fringe. There will be no place for our voices in the so-called synod on synodality. This is something we know for certain. Bob, what do you make of that letter? Well, I'm glad that he said this, actually, because as we've said many times, many things are said about Vatican II that are not in the documents at all. We've, we've said, for example, several times that Latin uh, is recommended in that document. It's not abolished, so that the, the move against the traditional Latin mass is kind of strange. I actually look back at the document uh, this week, and I, I search the document. There's nothing about ad orientum or east or west, so it, there's just nothing that is regulative about uh, ad orientum. And I wanna just read quickly, the three passages of, that I think are very interesting. And since we say all the time that the document doesn't say what people say, say it says, it's important to get these exact words. Section 36, particular law remaining in force, the use of the Latin language is to be preserved in the Latin rites. Section 54, nevertheless, steps should be taken, nevertheless, because there's also going to be some vernacular, steps should be taken so that the faithful may also be able to say or to sing together in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the Mass which pertain to them. Then, of course, there's, a, yep. there's a, an affirmation of Gregorian chant. That's what the documents yep. of Vatican II say. If, they, if somebody wants to object on other grounds, well, fine, they, you know, you, that can be, that can be yep. argued. But this constant use of Vatican II as sort of a touchstone, when in fact the documents don't support what people are saying about it, to me, I, it, it just seems to, it seems to me to reveal that something else is going on rather than this unity uh, in the under the umbrella of Vatican II. No, it, it's a distortion of Vatican II and its intention. Uh, uh, Father Jerry, following the letter that this Father Bush wrote, 
uh, that was published on his website. He was summoned to meet with Cardinal Supic, and hours later, he posted a new letter online. In the new letter, Bush expressed his deep-felt sorrow over that January 13th letter, and uh, he said it was in interpreted by social media as though I was being unjustly critical or disrespectful or lambasting the Holy Father or the Cardinal. And uh, he goes on to write about the canon 1373 that, uh, you know, carries interdicts and penalties for uh, stirring up dissent in the diocese. Now, Father Bush also noted he's been accused by the archdiocese of possibly violating canon 1369, okay? Uh, acquaint us with this, Father Jerry. You as a canonist, what do you make of the letter and Cardinal Supich's response? And has he violated those canons? Well, I looked at those canons. He's not violated them. He's not stirred up disobedience or hatred toward his ordinary. Uh, you have the freedom, according to Canon 212, to express publicly your view of things in the church in order to promote the mission of the church. Now, as regards uh, Cardinal uh, Supic forbidding ad orientem mass anywhere in his diocese, well, I note that the canons of St. John Cantius announced uh, this previous week that they would continue to celebrate the Mass ad orientum. So apparently they got a permission from Cardinal Supic that this other priest doesn't get. I don't understand why the selectivity there. The further question which Cardinal Burke raised, and this goes back to Cardinal Sarah back in 2016, Cardinal Sarah said right. quite clearly, there is nothing in the church documents or law that forbids Mass said ad orientum. Therefore, what the church allows, the local churches cannot forbid. So uh, I think this is unfortunate that uh, Father Bush's attempt to defend what is good in and of itself is being used as a means to accuse him of trying to stir up hatred against the bishop. Disagreeing with your bishop is not a form of hatred. In fact, it's a form of charity uh, because you're mm -hmm. trying to tell him, we think the truth requires another way of looking at this. Gentlemen, uh, I'm pressed for time. I only have about 10 minutes here. Uh, I want to move on to the issue of the Vatican's vaccine mandate. Ed Penton at the National Catholic Registers reported that Pope Francis met twice with the Pfizer CEO, Ab Albert Brulla, at the Vatican. Now, Bob, what do you make of this meeting with this Pfizer CEO? And does that taint in any way the Vatican's advocacy for not only vaccines, but the Pfizer vaccine in particular? Very quickly. Yeah, uh, I think that the Vatican has created a suspicion about itself here that need not have happened. I mean, we don't know what happened between um, Mr. Borla is his name. He's actually he's Jewish, so they were not. He was not hearing Borla's confession or, or counseling him spiritually. Uh, I think the Vatican could have just simply let it be known that the Pope had met with him. Uh, maybe it was an innocent thing. Maybe they were talking about the you know the need for vaccines and how can they be promoted and. You know what, what what's coming down the line, but the, by not even mentioning in the official record of who's meeting with the Pope and Borla met with him twice without this being right. mentioned. As I say, I think it it just creates a suspicion uh, where if this was innocent, there was no need to do so. Uh, Father Jerry, the Register has also reported that uh, Vatican Secretary of State Cardinal Pietro Parolin, I alluded to this earlier, and his deputy Edgar Peña Para. Uh, have both tested positive for COVID. Now, we should mention both men received two doses and a booster. Uh, Paralene is responsible for having signed into force this restrictive vaccine mandate for all the Vatican staff. Uh, he also, you'll remember last week, said that there really is no uh, uh, reason 
to object on moral grounds to taking the vaccine, and he particularly mentioned Pfizer, which is, of course, the only vaccine available in the Vatican, the one they've been pushing. Uh, d does the reality of the situation undermine confidence, not only in the utility of these mandates, but in the arguments being put forward surrounding them? Well, let's clear up a couple of things. Uh, of course, the Vatican did issue a document last year saying that it was morally licit to use the various vaccines because the involvement of the development and testing of those vaccines with the aborted baby's tissue was only remote. It didn't involve sinful behavior. So you can take the vaccine, but the Vatican also said you're not forced to take the vaccine. Now, right. what happens is as time develops, the Holy See has gotten more restrictive, and they won't let people who have a religious objection. You can object, for instance, to the fact that it's developed or tested with the aborted baby's flesh by saying, we're, we're going to boycott this in order to make the point that Pfizer should stop using that tissue of aborted children and use other means to test its, its products. So that thing should be said. Also, what about the people of natural immunity from having had it already, uh, the COVID, uh, scientists keep showing us that that form of uh, acquired immunity is often better than the one you get from the uh, vaccines. vaccines. All of this yeah. leads to the conclusion that saying right out, no Vatican employee can get an exemption on religious bases is treating this in a simplistic way that is not, uh, in fact, in line with the developing knowledge we have about how uh, COVID is transmitted mm -hmm. and then treated and then how we protect ourselves. Yeah. No, I, I'm a bit shocked at the, the ignorance and the, the ignoring of science and, and its evolution in this COVID crisis. Uh, breaking news this week regarding Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. The Associated Press and others are reporting that a sex abuse report coming out of the Diocese of Munich, Germany, faults then Archbishop Joseph Ratzinger for mishandling cases of abuse while leading the diocese from 1977 to 1982. Attorney Martin Push uh, had this to say, and he says, in a total of four cases, we have come to the conclusion that the then Cardinal Archbishop uh, Cardinal Ratzinger is to be accused of misconduct regarding cases of sexual abuse. Two of these cases involve acts of abuse committed during his tenure and sanctioned by the state under criminal law. In both cases, the perpetrators remained active in pastoral care without explicit restrictions on their activities. The report also lays blame at the feet of current Archbishop Cardinal Reinhard Marx. Archdiocese uh, officials committed, uh, or, or rather uh, commissioned, this report nearly two years ago and covers the period from 1945 to 2019. Bob, your thoughts on the timing? Why is this coming now? Yeah, this is a story about things that happened at least 40 years ago and maybe even a little bit longer than that. So it does raise some question of, of why bring this up now. We, we know that, generally speaking, the secular world does not like figures like uh, then-Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, but I, I think we ought to move slowly about this and, and, and find out more details about what actually happened, because there were four cases in the course of those five years that he was Cardinal Archbishop of Munich. Munich freezing is actually called. Um, one, one seems to have been external. Another one seems to have some iffy status. And then there are two. And we don't know. I mean, we're talking about the early 80s when the, the, uh, the abuse situations were not as clear as they are today. A lot of people, a lot of bishops here in the United States 
were told by psychologists, psychiatrists, and whatnot that people could be treated and that they could be cured. So I think we want to know more about this. I don't think we want to exonerate uh, the former pope, but it seems to yeah. me that this is really a late hit um, on somebody yeah. who elsewhere in his life has been very vigorous in dealing with yeah. uh, priestly abuse of, of young people. And, and Pope Emeritus Benedict is, is denying uh, wrongdoing here. Uh, it, it is unclear whether he fully even knew about these cases, Father Jerry, or at least right. two of them. Uh, the accusations are, are directed at the handling of abuse cases in which these perpetrators were punished but remained in pastoral work, I guess, after their incarceration or whatever happened. What, what are the canonical issues at play here, particularly in that period of the late 70s, early 80s? Well, the canonical issue is, did the bishop use uh, responsible criterion for enforcing canon law, for enforcing the moral law, and prudence in assigning priests who have a history of sexual abuse crimes uh, to carry out pastoral work? Uh, I direct our listeners to the Wall Street Journal story today, and I agree with Bob, we should uh, you know, look at this thing very carefully. The Wall Street Journal has a story about this, which it details allegedly what Pope Benedict said in his approximately 90-page submission to this commission. Mm -hmm. So the commission asked him questions. He sent him a document, and one of the lawyers characterizes what he said, and it's very disturbing uh, because it recounts, I would think, uh, according to how I see it, uh, a misappreciation of the potential for harm by a man who's committed gross immorality in the presence of minors. So the canon mm. law issue is that bishops are responsible for which priest they authorize to work in their diocese. I would encourage Pope Benedict and, Car and his assistant, Archbishop Genschwein, has said he will issue a response. He should immediately publish his 90-page document so that we can, based on what he said, not what a lawyer characterizes mm. as that, and then questions should be uh, taken from the media. Uh, because, you know, yeah. if we're going to grill every other cardinal is accused, uh, unfortunately, the Pope Emeritus is subject to that similar scrutiny. And not unfortunate, it's ju justice requires it. It's unfortunate that, of course, anything that happened in the past uh, could possibly mm -hmm. have been covered up. We hope that's not the case here. The Pope well, says he didn't know I about agree. one case. You know, mm -hmm. let's see what happens. No, I agree with you. But uh, but uh, I also agree, and I think we're all in agreement, transparency of all these cases is what we need. I, I, I think we need to know what did Pope Benedict do or did not do when he was bishop. We know what he did as, as a CDF head. Uh, there were over 3,000 cases that, you know, men who were, were uh, laicized because of their actions, and that was largely through his work. But I also think the current pope's uh, record also needs to be made transparent. The cases of Bishop Sanchetta, Father Grassi in Argentina, there are lingering questions there as well. So I don't want to only go to the deep past. We also have to look at the present as well and, and have transparency across the board. Before we go very quickly, gentlemen, I want to get your reflections on the life and legacy of Catholic philosopher Professor Alice von Hildebrand, who passed away this week at the age of 98. Lily was a friend, a uh, mainstay here on EWTN, more than, more than 80 appearances. She hosted her own series on, uh, on EWTN, appeared on Mother Angelica's show. Uh, your quick comments on her. I'll start with you, Father Jerry. You knew her. She was a, a parishioner in your, I, I believe, your, your family's parish in New York. Yes, the parish I grew up in, she was a member. I remember Dietrich von Hildebrand and Alice uh, sitting in front of us at Mass uh, in the uh, early 70s. Yeah, she was an extraordinary figure because she was totally devoted to the truth. 
as a philosopher, as a theologian, uh, as a spiritual guide. Uh, she's written beautiful books on marriage, on the meaning of femininity. She's also a big supporter of the traditional Latin mass, precisely because based on her acquaintance with her husband's ideas, she understood that reverence is one of the central categories of human existence. If you're going to be right with mm -hmm. God and your neighbor, you have to have a reverential spirit. And she saw, as I think Cardinal Burke was saying earlier, the reverence promoted by the traditional Latin Mass is a gateway to spiritual riches yeah. and to heavenly insights. So yeah, she is a, a model of what it means to be a Catholic woman totally devoted to the Lord in the Church. Bob, your final thoughts on uh, the lasting legacy of Alice von Hildebrand, particularly in the realm of Catholic thought, feminism, uh, given her experiences fleeing Europe at the beginning of World War II and meeting her husband, Dietrich? Yeah, you know, in secular terms, we talk about the greatest generation, meaning the people who, uh, the, the, the men and women who helped us defeat Nazism and, and uh, in Japan in World War II. She belongs to that period, and let's pray to God that they're not, that's not the last of the great generations that we see. I mean, she was mm. able to be um, intellectually productive, uh, fearless, as, as both of them were in standing yeah. up to, to, uh, to Hitler and to other things. And so after, the, after you've seen Hitler and Stalin and the, the, those, those monsters of the, the early and middle part of the 20th century, they, they came to the, the controversies and, and the, the, the struggles and the battles, frankly, that, have, that we now have to fight mm -hmm. with a great deal of courage and experience that it, if things could get very bad here. And, and that even added yeah. more to the fidelity and, and the, the desire for truth that Father was talking about. And let's hope that we see more like them in future generations. Yeah, no, she was a real warrior and a, and a great lady. Uh, Alice von Hildebrand, rest in peace. Gents, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. For commentary by Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray, you can visit CatholicThingTheCatholicThing.org. Thank you, gentlemen. Since Roe v. Wade legalized abortion here in the United States in 1973, over 62 million lives have been lost to the procedure. On January 21st, the annual March for Life takes place here in Washington along the National Mall. The march is an in-person event this year after going virtual in 2021 due to the pandemic. Over 50,000 people are expected to take part. Joining me now to discuss the pro-life cause and the need for more legislative protections for life is physician and candidate for governor in the state of Minnesota, Dr. Neil Shaw. Dr. Shaw, thanks for being with us. I want to start with this week's March for Life and what it represents to you and the nation. How important is this march, particularly when the issue is before the Supreme Court as we speak? Well, it's incredibly important that our voices be heard, that those who want to defend life, that defend the unborn, uh, are seen in the public eye. <laughs> I've never thought that there, we would get to this point where we would have the Supreme Court uh, ready to undo one of the worst decisions they've ever made. And I think that we have that possibility this spring. So this is a particularly poignant time to have the March for Life in Washington. And I'm hopeful that after that decision, uh, those, uh, uh, the ability to restrict abortion will be uh, delivered back to the states. Well, with this Dobbs decision looming at the Supreme Court, uh, the court's expected to rule at the end of this year's session. Now, President Biden and the House and Senate leadership are committed to enshrining Roe into law, meaning abortions on demand. 
how important does it become to have pro-life governors leading the states should the court overturn Roe? It becomes extremely important. I believe that there is a chance that when the Supreme Court overturns this, what they will do is return those police powers to the states where they appropriately belong. It will then be incumbent upon each state to ensure that they are defending uh, the unborn based on the laws that they have in their state. And I look forward to being the first governor after Roe versus Wade is overturned to help in the long battle to defend the unborn in the state of Minnesota, which is unfortunately one of the most pro-abortion states in the nation. Yeah, talk to us for a moment about the um, activities of Planned Parenthood in your state, which are pretty, they're very active there. Well, each year, uh, 10,000 Minnesotans uh, lose their lives before they have a chance to be born. And Planned Parenthood is responsible for about 60% of those, and the overwhelming majority of those are taxpayer-funded. Um, if you think Roe versus Wade is bad in Minnesota, we have a ruling from 1993 called Doe versus Gomez. And Doe versus Gomez mm -hmm. enshrines the payment for abortion services into law and essentially forces mm. the state to pay for the killing of unborn Minnesotans. So while we've been able to chip away at the edges with pro-life legislation, such as uh, supporting crisis pregnancy centers and ultrasound bills, still the majority of abortions in the state are going to be funded by taxpayer dollars. And we look forward to starting mm. the process of undoing Doe versus Gomez with the election of successive conservative pro-life governors in this state. Now, you're a physician, a family man, a son of immigrants. Why have you decided to wade into politics and run for the governorship of uh, Minnesota? Weren't you having a happy life? Why get into I, all I, of this? I love my life. I love my three kids. We have a fourth one on the way. They're all blessings. I love my wife. I have a growing practice. I love my patients. Uh, but for too long, I took for granted freedom and liberty. And 2020 was very traumatic for many of us. Uh, we realized how tenuous freedom and liberty are. We realized that the career political class would sooner keep themselves in power than stand for any set of principles. The people of Minnesota are tired of what the career politicians have done to the state. They're tired of people failing to stand up for the unborn, for failing to defend our God-given rights. And they want someone who comes from the outside who's going to actually have principles that animate them, that inform them, that uh, allow them to govern in a way that is transparent and that is based on uh, morals and ethics. Uh, for too long, we've let the career political class destroy our state, and it is time to take it back, and I believe that now is that time. Now, you have made uh, the pro-life position a central plank in your campaign. You're running on it. How would you implement pro-life policy? What's the first thing you would do if elected on this front? Well, it is a long struggle, and for the warriors who've been fighting for life for decades, they realize how long that struggle is. In Minnesota, because of the Doe versus Gomez decision, it is a series of successive gubernatorial wins that we need by uh, very pro-life governors to appoint enough justices to the Supreme Court to lay the groundwork for a set of laws that would undo what Doe versus Gomez has done. Now, in the, that time, mm -hmm. I would look forward to signing legislation that would challenge that in court. But realistically, we do need the makeup of that Supreme Court, primarily who are appointed by governors, to have a constitutionalist bent. 
Once we do that, then we can get that legislation through. So as the first person through, uh, I would very much want to champion pro-life views, uh, attempt to win hearts and minds, lay the groundwork to get uh, constitutionalist, originalist judges appointed to the Supreme Court and ensure that there are people who come behind me that can take up that mantle and continue the fight once I've gone back to my practice. Because the last thing I want to mm -hmm. do is end up with a career in politics. I'd like to serve and then get back to running my practice and uh, spending time with my kids. I love that philosophy, which which harkens back to the founders. You know, these guys were lawyers and uh, uh, local inventors and publishers, farmers. They went back to their their uh, vocation after public service. It was always intended as a service, not a lifetime career move. Uh, what is your message to viewers this week, doctor, as people all over the country commemorate this grim anniversary of Roe v. Wade? We have the opportunity to take back our states and our countries piece by piece. You, we the people, are responsible for that. We can run for school boards, city councils, mayors, state representatives, state senators. We can turn the tide in Congress. We can become state executives. We the people are in charge of this country, and for far too long, we have allowed the career political class to run America into the ground. I say to you, no longer can we allow that to happen. We must rise up at every level and take our country back, restore constitutional principles, defend life, defend liberty, and make our country into the country we want it to be, the country that brought my parents here 50 years ago and the country mm -hmm. that I hope my children will have to grow up in uh, as they age. Dr. Neil Shaw, thank you so much for your time. We will be watching your race. Thank you again. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. Until then, on behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.